Thank you all so much. Beautifully done. Good morning, everyone. Welcome again. My name is Nathan Nelson, and I oversee mission and outreach here at Bethany. And typically, I'm up here during the announcement time sharing with you a bit about uh, what may be happening in the life of mission here at the church. Grateful to be with you and sharing the message this morning. Uh, This morning does mark the beginning of Advent, hence the beautiful decor. Do you like what you see here? Let's go ahead and give it a round of applause. I know the people who did it are here. Beautifully done. Advent is more than just beautiful decorations and Christmas trees and that kind of thing. As we've heard alluded to in the songs already sung today and in the scripture that's been read, Advent is a season in the life of the church that is set aside for the anticipation of the coming Christ. And so between now and Christmas, all the way up to Christmas, we're going to be looking uh, in this season of Advent at one core theme that we see all throughout scripture, and that is God with us. And so we all know Emmanuel means God with us, but critically what we're going to be looking at is the significance of that and the various ways that it manifests in Scripture and in our lives today and the significance for what it is for God to be with us as we seek to follow Christ. This morning we're going to be looking at the text that was read. Before we hop into that, would you just pause and pray with me and let's acknowledge that God is with us even now in our moments of worship together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what an incredible gift to be your children God, thank you for the gift of this season that we get to for just uh, a short time. Acknowledge the reality that without you present with us in our lives, uh, things would be profoundly different. Lord, we we know that though you're with us and and that's a timeless truth, that it it can be difficult to recognize that. Lord, so often we, we miss it. We miss the ways in which you are active in the world and ushering us into uh, the glorious processional of your coming kingdom. And so, Lord, give us wisdom. Open our eyes just a little bit wider this morning, we pray, to the reality of your presence with us. Lord, attune us to what your spirit is doing in such a way that we might individually and collectively evermore embody the truth of who you are in our world. We love you, God. We're grateful for what you'll do in your name. Amen. Well, in her book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria?, author Beverly Tatum writes this. Sometimes the assumptions we make about others come not from what we have been told or what we have seen on television or in books, but rather from what we have not been told. The distortion of historical information about people of color leads young people and older people too to make assumptions that, we, that may go unchallenged for a long time. She then goes on to describe the effects of what is called implicit bias upon how we organize ourselves and with whom we relate such that while a conscious decision might not necessarily be being made on behalf of people to sit with others that look or sound uh, like them, this happens. And this phenomenon we've come to understand uh, in our world today is implicit bias. The reality is, as a result of this, and, and, and what she's getting at here in her book, is that implicit bias causes us to miss the reality of who people are around us, and by virtue of that fact, who we are. An implicit bias is just one of the many contemporary examples of how this plays out, of how we fail to see and to recognize the nature of what is happening in our midst, of who people are, and thus who we really are. And so in this text, we're introduced to this tension that while the word, and the word in this text, of course, is God, through whom all things were created, who gave light in the midst of darkness, who was literally in the world, despite all of that, the world did not recognize him. And so, I think, 
as we've seen with implicit bias, and we'll see in some other examples this morning, that we suffer these problems even today. We fail to see, we fail to recognize all that God is, and what John's gospel is getting at this morning is that in response to that, Christ has provided us with a solution. And so there's three observations that I wanna make with regards to this failure to recognize the profound reality and the implications that God is indeed with us. And the outline is there in your bulletin. The first observation is this, that God is in creation. The light of Christ illuminates the image of God imprinted upon his creation. And second, that God is with humanity and that God dwells among us. And then finally, that God is within you, an invitation to burst with joy. So let's begin with this first observation. God is in all of creation. Our passage for today begins with an allusion to the creation narrative. It's not hard to draw correlations. Uh, even if you're just a, you know, every once or month or so Bible reader, uh, you can see that uh, this is alluding to the creation narrative that we get in Genesis. So I'm just going to read those first few verses for us again. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all humankind. The light that shines in the darkness, that darkness has not overcome it. Now, significantly, if we recall the order of creation in the Genesis narrative, what we're going to see is that everything that was just talked about in John's gospel that I just read precedes the creation of the sun, S-U-N, and of the stars. So all that brings physical light into the world has not been mentioned yet, and yet we see what John's gospel is getting at is that the light of Christ, the light of who God is, is actually something different than just material light, than just physical light. And the relationship between darkness and light does become a metaphor that's used throughout Scripture. However, we have to be really careful with the way in which we draw upon that analogy. Too quickly, we jump to assumptions about what that means. And for example, in history, the distinction between physical light and physical darkness has actually been used for the oppression of some people against others. For example, uh, light-skinned people used to use this very verse to persecute dark-skinned people. And it's not just racism. Uh, There's other examples of this as well. For example, you may have heard these terms, the secular versus the sacred. And this same sort of, what I would uh, propose to you all as a false dichotomy is created by an abuse of this analogy of light versus darkness. And the beautiful thing that we see, and we heard about this in a sermon a little bit uh, earlier this month in in the series before this one, that light and darkness are not in and of themselves characteristically a, quote, bad thing, but that God is in the midst of all of that. And so what I want to suggest, though, that as a consequence of this uh, light and and dark sort of misinterpretations, what what we've seen is a false worldview has developed in which we ultimately fail to recognize and receive all that God is and is doing in the world. And so this passage of Scripture ought to remind us not of the exclusivity of God being for some people and not for some other people, or being for some things and not for some other things. Rather, it should remind us of the radical inclusivity of God, that God is in all of creation. Through him, all things were made. 
Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And we just finished this sermon series entitled Portraits Representing Christ to the City in which each week over the last several weeks, we've looked at what is Christ actually for? And each week we sought to debunk a myth around things that Christ has been perceived in the culture as being against. And so the reality here is that this text is the core text for what gives us this critical doctrine in our faith, which is the doctrine of common grace. And it's this doctrine that allows us to look at everything in and through creation and, and, and all the different vocations that we see manifested in the world and acknowledge that God can be evident in all of those things. That doesn't excuse the reality of darkness, but what it does is it causes us to recognize that being good or bad and light and dark is simply too simplistic. That there's something that, that God can be in the midst of things that are even really, uh, that, that, that are quote, secular, and as well as, 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 well as sacred. And so, uh, this is, we just heard this, uh, folks in the service industry celebrated earlier in the service, did we not? And this is uh, really core to our faith and work initiative here at Bethany. Excuse me, I am suffering from uh, three-month-long sinus infection in my voices as well. <clears throat> is that better? Here we go. So, um, the, the, the reality is that this doctrine allows us to, and this, again, is part of our faith and work initiative, recognizing that all vocations, all careers can, in one way or another, represent the beauty of who God is. The way in which we pursue our work, whether it's in the service industry, the business uh, world, entertainers, financial advisors, janitorial staff, stay-at-home parents, all of these things, if we pursue them with diligence, uh, with joy, and with excellence, can in and of themselves bear witness to who Christ is. And so this uh, verse, these verses, which have, uh, again, been abused in ways to say this is of God and this is not of God, is actually the very verses that give us this doctrine of common grace that says, no, God is in all things, all created things. And so what I believe this should do is cause us to relax just a little bit and be able to, to, to take a deep breath and to say, where is God moving in my midst? And how can I be called in response to that? Now, before I came to Bethany, I worked at an organization called World Relief Seattle that does refugee resettlement, and it's an organization that we work with here at the church. And uh, my, my job at World Relief was to help refugees find work. I was an employment specialist there, and so in the time that I was working at World Relief, there uh, was an influx of what are called uh, special immigration visa folks from Afghan, Afghanistan and Iraq. And these folks were coming uh, as a result of being persecuted for having come alongside people uh, in the United States, uh, namely the military and embassy workers uh, that were uh, involved in the United States kind of uh, work in, in that region, especially after 9-11. And before I got this work uh, at World Relief, I can honestly tell you, I don't think that I had at least, probably I'd met someone, but I never had like a personal relationship with anybody from Afghanistan or Iraq. And I'd heard a lot about Afghanistan, certainly in the news, since I was a, just a young kid when 9-11 happened. And, um, you know, I'd heard a lot of messages about, about that part of the world. But when I started working at World Relief and these folks started coming, uh, it really began to transform my worldview around uh, this region and people from this area. And, and one person in particular had a significant impact on me. His name was Elias. And Elias had come, he was an interpreter for the special forces. 
Now, uh, imagine for a second if your only exposure to America was through special forces personnel. Does anyone know anyone in the special forces here? Yeah, I see like three nods in the yes direction. For the rest of us, we have no idea what that would be like, but I can tell you what I digested from Elias who digested from these folks. And I know there's probably a diversity of people in the special forces and they're the full range of all the things and that's good. But he was showing me pictures on his phone as I'm driving to him to an interview one day and you know, he's kind of holding his phone in front of me while I'm driving, which is super safe. <laughs> and he's showing me these pictures and it's him and these just huge burly guys, big beards, tattoos, like three times the body mass that I have or will ever have. Uh, and they're all holding fully automatic rifles, camo, that kind of thing. This was the America that Elias had digested and that he was now regurgitating to me in the form of rhetoric in my car, which was full of colorful words and all of these things. And every now and then, you know, don't, don't use those words when you're in the interview, but thank, thank you for your passion. Um, so Elias and I were having this conversation and uh, he's got great English. Again, he was an interpreter working with these guys and I'm thinking to myself, you know, wow, this is so different than anything I experienced. And he's in a quote, Americanized version of somebody from Afghanistan. Uh, and then we get to talking a little bit. I'm asking about his family. He's asking me about my family. And I say, oh, you know, I have a, a mom and a, and a dad and a brother. And, and my mom and my dad got divorced when I was young. And so now my mom was remarried. And she and my stepdad live in this place called Portland, not too far from here. And then, you know, uh, my brother, he lives up here in Seattle. He came here for work. And he interrupts me and he says, Nathan, this is so sad. And I was like... Thank you so much. This is my family. Uh, he says, no, no, this is so sad. I said, what's so sad, Elias? And he says, your dad. Where's your dad? And I said, oh, well, my dad, he, he, when my parents got divorced, you know, he moved out and he lived in his own house. And so he, he, at the time, he was living uh, not far from where I'd grown up in Portland. And, and so I'm explaining this to him. He says, no, 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 Nathan, this is so sad. No one's parents should ever be alone. I thought, Elias, I know uh, it's not maybe ideal, but here in America is different, you know, divorce is common and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I'm kind of, you know, giving him the like, cultures are different and things. And, and he just insisted, no, Nathan, this is so sad. No parent should ever be alone. You need to fix this. And so I left that conversation and, and, and that did stick with me. He was very persistent. Uh, but fast forward a couple of years, and I've shared this with many of you in the past, my dad wound up in the ICU just over a year ago after complications, super rare complications um, with the surgery that he'd had. And uh, the, it was the day I was here at work at the church and I got a call and it said, you know, your, your dad is in this situation and it wasn't clear at the time exactly if it was really that serious or not, I wasn't sure. Um, the doctors weren't sure either. But I can tell you that I recalled Elias's words to me uh, knowing that my dad was there alone in the ICU. And, 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 and so those words uh, began kind of reverberating in my mind. No one's parents should be alone. Nathan, your dad should not be alone. And so uh, honestly, in response to that, I thought, I'm just going to go down there. I don't want to wait for the doctors to call me back in a day or something and tell me what is going on. So I went down to Portland, and I, there, that is where I stayed for the next three weeks as my dad suffered uh, through the last three weeks of his life. And I can tell you that that was um, every single day that I spent with my dad in the ICU, I will not regret. And I really do believe, in hindsight, that Elias' words to me, no parent should be alone, 
were nothing less than Jesus' words to me. Your dad doesn't need to be alone. You should go and you should be with him. Now, Elias is a Muslim from this place called Afghanistan, which at least if you grew up around the time that I did, we were taught to believe certain things about that place. Jesus' words through a Muslim, through an Afghan, absolutely. Now, I can see maybe some cautionary flags of universalism sort of bubbling up from within some of you out there. And I just want to acknowledge that this is not, we're not talking about salvation here. That's a different matter. What we are talking about is the reality that God is in all of his creation and can reveal God's self however God chooses in and through his people and his created world. That's what we are talking about. So rather than concern ourselves with building walls between, quote, sacred and secular, or between who is in and who is out, what we're invited to do is to open our eyes a bit wider and ask God to give us a wider lens through which to see his beauty imprinted upon all of his creation. And in so doing, I believe that we can become people who, contrary to the problem presented at the outset of this, these verses from the Gospel of John, that we can become people who do recognize God in our midst. And that brings us to our second point for this morning, God with humanity, that God has made his dwelling among us. And so uh, it's always been true that God is in his creation, as I've just described. However, in verse 14, a pivotal shift happens in all of the cosmos, a shift that alters the trajectory of the history of all of creation, of all of humanity, of you and of me. And this is the arrival of Jesus, the word God becoming flesh and blood and dwelling among us. And I know we've heard that before, and so maybe to liven it up a bit and put it in new terms, I want to read this uh, text, verse 14 from the message. It says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. So God here provides a solution to humanity's struggle to recognize him. And that is moving into the neighborhood with each one of us. And one of the beautiful things that I love about Eugene Peterson's translation of the message here is that it reminds us that this cosmic shift that happens with the arrival of Jesus is not so much this abstract theological concept that if we sing just enough songs on just enough Sundays between now and the day that we get more presents and spend more money on ourselves and other people of all time, we might grasp the reality that God is with us. He puts it simply for us. He makes it real in a contemporary sense, and says, no, it's really as simple as Christ came and moved into the neighborhood with you and with me. Now, I don't know about you, but simply moving can feel like a cosmic shift in and of itself. Is that right? My wife and I, we just recently bought a new home uh, here in the neighborhood, and so we've been moving. We moved last Saturday and the last few days leading up to uh, Thanksgiving, and my parents, my mom and stepdad came into town to stay with us. They were here on Wednesday, which was just enough time for us to cram everything in the basement and have the spare room ready for them. 
Uh, but man, moving is a cosmic shift, like holy cow. We got a moving truck, that's what you do, right? And uh, we loaded it up, we thought we had everything in there, we're you know, literally moving a mile from our, our, our rental house that was here just a few blocks away to just a, a, about a mile north between Northgate and uh, I-5 and Aurora there. And I don't know what the deal is, but moving trucks, I don't care how big they are, you still have to do like 35 trips in your personal vehicle to and from your car. And this was a reality in my life through Thanksgiving all the way till yesterday at 10 o'clock when I finally put the key under the mat to the home that we were renting before and said, you know what, I've cleaned the stove three times. If I get my security deposit back or not, it's all good. But the reality is, man, moving is a cosmic shift. And it has really shaken up our lives. But in the course of this moving and thinking about where it is that my wife and I were going to live, and, uh, you know, we, again, we're renting a home, and, and that home went up for sale, and so we were trying to figure out, you know, do we look for another place to rent? Can we possibly afford to buy? It caused us to start thinking about the significance of place in our lives, the significance of our neighborhood and the place that we would call home. And uh, Macy and I, my wife, we... After uh, college, we went to Seattle Pacific University. After that, we, uh, were, we got married at the Great Hall at Green Lake, uh, just down the road here. And our first apartment was uh, literally just two blocks from here um, at, by the lake. And we lived there for three plus years. And after that, we had an opportunity to move into this rental house. And it was literally just not even a block from the apartment that we'd been living in. So again, back to moving, we thought, you know, it's a little bit of a hill. We'll get a moving truck, do it the old-fashioned way. So we did that. Uh, the only thing that we actually carried from one to the other was our fish bowl because it just felt right. Um, but uh, so, so we, we, we really, we, we, we discovered that we'd become rooted in the Green Lake neighborhood. We never really set it out for it to be that way. Uh, my wife, she worked as a teacher in Seattle Public Schools in the Central District, and I was working at World Relief, which if you don't know is in Kent. And so we were doing long commutes here from Green Lake to these places, super invested in what's going on, some of the injustices that are happening on the south end of the city. But there was something about Green Lake. You know, our place of worship was here. Uh, we, we'd gone here through college. We continued to attend and were leaders uh, before I came on staff here with different ministries. And there was something about Green Lake that drew us in. Uh, we really did love, I love that on sunny days at the lake, so like four times a year, there's a significant influx of folks from all over the city, which really represents all over the world. And, you know, everyone's gathered there. There's like two feet between each person's blanket and the next person and their seven dogs and it's chaos, but we love it. And, and we also love, you know, what's going on here on Aurora Avenue and just wrestling with the tension between the homelessness and the drug and sex trafficking that happens there and then just blocks from there. A place like this and, and all the beautiful homes and, and the beauty that is uh, kind of the middle upper income neighborhood of Green Lake. And so all of this had become really a part of us. And so the first five years of our marriage, though we'd been working on the South End and, and living up here, we felt like when it came to make a decision about a new place to live, like this was as much who we are as anything. And so we wanted to be in this place. And I don't know if you're like me, you're like, okay, you're a pastor, your wife's a teacher, how in the world did you afford a house in North Seattle? Um, Jesus. And so 
we, uh, we, 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 we've, we wanted to live in this area, and so we began looking, and sure enough, we were able to find a home that, that we could afford and that we could move into and stay in this neighborhood. And it's really been a gift. Uh, my wife, she just a year ago transferred to a school that's uh, just right up here on, on 90th and Aurora. I obviously started working at the church, and so to be in this place is significant for us. And why am I harping so much on place? Well, uh, there's authors of a book called Place Matters, an examination of metro politics for the 21st century that write this about place. They say it may seem odd to argue that place still matters when technology appears to have conquered space. Americans are highly mobile. Cars and planes allow us to travel quickly and easily. Telephones, computers, cable networks, and the internet enable us to interact with others without leaving our homes. Virtual universities enable students to pursue college degrees from home. E-commerce, a.k.a. Amazon, removes the need to drive to the mall. Every day, more people work at home. In short, where you live seems ever less relevant to the type of person that you are or what you do. So amidst these realities, they go on to reject popular notions that cities are becoming obsolete. A lot of people would say that. They cite that Cities is where over 80% of the American population has chose to live. And housing prices in a place like Seattle are evidence enough to say that no, cities and, and, and place still matters. And for the poor, place seems to matter even more. As lower-income families are less likely to have regular internet access, or for other reasons, uh, but local networks have to take the place of virtual ones for finding jobs or housing or other opportunities. If you don't have a car, it requires you to live closer to where you work or you have to uh, have a longer, costlier commute. And so you see, whether we choose it or it chooses us, place matters in our lives. And this is why God's solution to our inability to recognize him in the world is to move into our place, into our neighborhood. And this is the story of the incarnation of Emmanuel, God with us, interrupting the truth that already God is present in all of creation and physically putting God's self in physical space such that the world around could see, oh, God is walking around in flesh and blood in the person of Jesus. Now, I shared a little bit about my testimony of how place has become significant for Macy and, our, and, our, and, Macy and I in our lives, but I think perhaps uh, the story of a friend of mine named Stephen might illustrate this even more so. Um, before I was uh, here at Bethany, part of my work at World Relief was to work in reunifying Central American minors with their parents who had legal status here in the United States. And so uh, uh, throughout that time, I met a lot of different families, but this one family in particular, uh, I became really close with and have maintained a relationship with over time. And so uh, Stephen's father came to me one day and said, I would love to make a petition for my two sons, the old of which, of which was Stephen, and his wife to come and be reunified with him here in the United States. They were living in Honduras and they were experiencing all different kinds of oppression and persecution there, and so it was his hope that they could come and be with them. And so we filed the petition, and sure enough, after about a year and a half or so and several health screenings and background checks and interviews uh, with different security departments, both uh, in the Honduran end and, and on the United States end, uh, they got approved to come. 
And so uh, Stephen and his younger brother and his mom came up here to Seattle and, uh, about four years ago now. And they uh, had been living, they've been living in the North Seattle area all of that time. Uh, now, with the changes in administration and, and some of the immigration policy issues uh, happening right now, their, their status has since become destabilized. And so it was about a year ago or so that Stephen gave me a call and uh, we have periodically gone out for coffee and that kind of thing. And he said, you know, Nathan, would it be all right if we went for coffee? I, I have something I wanna to talk to you about. And so I said, sure, of course. So we met at a coffee shop here right on Green Lake and uh, we walked the lake and, and as we're walking, I can tell there's something on Stephen's mind. And so I said, you know, hey, you wanna sit and we can talk a little bit. And he shared, you know, Nathan, I'm worried that I'm gonna to have to go home. And I said, I'm worried too, you know, but you know, we'll, we'll be praying and there's things that you can do. And he said, no, 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 Nathan, I'm worried that I have to go home because if I go home, I'm not going to be okay. I said, well, why? I know. I know things weren't good for you there. And you know what? He said, no, Nathan, I, I need to tell you something I've never told anyone before. I said, okay, you know, what is that? And in his vulnerability, he said, Nathan, I'm gay. And if I go home to, where, where, to my community, I'm going to be abused. I'm going to be literally targeted and persecuted. I cannot be myself in the place that I come from. And I said, wow, you know, thank you for sharing that with me. And, and in the moment, I encouraged him to try applying for asylum on the basis of persecution. And so he did. And within a, uh, about a year's time, he just recently was granted asylum uh, and is going to be able to stay here in the U.S. Now his, his mom and his brother and now his dad, their status is uncertain, but, but his is certain uh, because of that. And Stephen's story really got me thinking about the significance of place. And thinking about the tension for him between the place that he had called home and this new place that he was calling home and the significance that those places have played in his life. Uh, Stephen writes this. Uh, he, he's a photographer and a poet, and, and, and I've gotten to know him in that way over the last several years, and it's been really fun to see this sort of creative energy come alive in him. And I thought it was fitting for today, if you don't know this, these verses from John that we've been looking at are considered in many ways some of the most poetic literature, not just in the Bible, but in the history of humankind. And so, so Stephen himself is a poet, and, and he writes this in, in a recent social media post. He said, I am from the rural mountains, from where the roosters sing every morning. I am from the rain smells of the earth, from the land where the sky is always painted blue, while the wind blows hot, where the rivers slide to the sea, where fish fall from the sky, where the natives live without being known. I am simply from where kids design their own toys by hand, and old people get together to talk about tales and legends. This is a guy who didn't speak a word of English just a few years ago. Pretty good, huh? And I think this sort of loving and beautiful and, and tender description of his homeland is, is so significant in his life because it's the very place from which he came and he can't go back because of who he is. But it's obvious that it's an integral part of who he is to this day. And Seattle, of course, has become his new home. And it's so interesting to me to recall in my conversations with him, after he'd, he'd sort of come out and told me this about his identity, he said to me, you know, Nathan, as much as I love my home, I, 
and, I'm, and I'm, it's hard for me to think of not going back there. I love Seattle. And I said, why do you love Seattle? And he's like, well, since I was a really young boy, my dad would send me pictures from Seattle and postcards and things like that. And he thought, Seattle is this big and beautiful city. And it, to him, it represented new opportunities and a place that he could get a formal education uh, of, a, of a higher level and a place that he could be himself. And so he said, you know, I always wanted to come to Seattle. And since he's been here on his social media page, he posts nothing but pictures of the Space Needle and other landmarks from around Seattle. And the beautiful thing to me is that in Stephen's life, while place has been both a source of pain, it's also been a place of beauty. That place for him literally has the power to give life, to provide safety, to give refuge, and to grant freedom. All of this, I believe, is evidence of God being with us in the places that we find ourselves, with Stephen in his oppression in Honduras, with him in his journey to America, with him as he wrestles with his identity, who he is, his orientation, with him today in Seattle as he seeks to learn a new culture, a new language, and follow his dreams into the future. And this brings us to our final point for this morning, God within you an invitation to burst with joy. So we've seen first that God is in all of creation. And secondly, that the coming of Jesus, Emmanuel, God in flesh and blood, has come to be present with us in physical space and in the various places that we find ourselves. And finally, we're gonna put these two together, God within each of us. And that's the beautiful promise at the end of our text for this morning that as children of God, our creator God is alive within you and within me. Verse 16 puts it this way. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. And I'm gonna refer back to the message here ongoing through verses 18. It says this. We all live off his generous bounty, gift after gift after gift, We got the basics from Moses and then this exuberant giving and receiving, this endless knowing and understanding, all this came through Jesus, the Messiah. We live off his generous bounty. I love that. Literally, every good thing that we have, every breath that we take is a gift from God. Amen? Amen. He is literally the very source of our being. Now, we were, we're receivers of all these gifts, and as we know, Christmas certainly is, uh, if nothing less, an, uh, an opportunity to learn this in our material lives. When we receive all these gifts, it should produce gratitude within us, right? And that's the intention. But not simply to produce a passive gratitude, but to produce in us an active response of generosity. And so this is where I'd like to move to the text from Isaiah that we heard read, verses seven seven through 10, I'll read them for us again. It says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Burst into songs of joy together. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. This language of bursting into songs of joy is significant. That is what I think a life of generosity looks like. So we began with this sort of false dichotomy between the sacred and the secular, between light and dark. And that if we get carried away with that, we can fail to see the reality that God is in and through all of his creation. 
And so, as I've illustrated a little bit, much of my life has been shaped by folks from different parts of the world, different cultures, and, 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 and seeing God in the midst of that. And it's just blown my world up. I came to faith, uh, long story short, my mom tricked me in going on to a, into a mission trip when I was in high school. And uh, I thought I was going to Mexico to party, and I wound up going to Mexico with a church group. And uh, I came to know the Lord. And uh, so that's just one of the many ways in which these different places and different people have, have displayed Christ for me in a way that at least I needed for my world to be blown up just enough to see God. And uh, while many of those stories are, are true uh, and have happened in international settings, most recently, a way in which I have come to appreciate uh, the character of Christ in new ways is through a, a new hobby that my wife and I have together. I don't know if you've ever heard of flying trapeze, Anyone heard about this? When I say flying trapeze, nod your head if you have any idea what I'm talking about. Five of you nodded, and it's because you saw The Greatest Showman. It's all good. Just imagine that. Not exactly. I wish. Um, my wife and I, we got into this thing called flying trapeze. I don't, honestly, I can tell you, I would never thought I would say that sentence, let alone be using it in a sermon illustration. But here we go. So uh, my, we got into this a family from Bethany here invited us one time to the circus school in Seattle. Who knew there was a circus school in Seattle? I had no idea. There's a circus school here. And so we started going, and uh, the, the very first time that we went, you know, my wife was pumped. She was thinking, like, you know, I've always wanted to be in the circus. When I was young, I would go and uh, be in gymnastics, and, and that was really cool. And then in college, she got into yoga, and she said, really, I only do yoga because I think I get to do tricks. And so for her, it's like this lifelong trajectory towards the circus. And I don't know if that's a dream she shared with her mom when she was young. I don't think it's the kind of thing that we're necessarily always excited about our kids wanting to do. But Macy wanted to be in the circus. And I always thought this was a joke, but this was no joke. She was serious. And so we're driving there, and she's telling me, like, this is it. Nathan, we are fulfilling my dream today. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, what in the world is going on? What am I doing? I grew up a jock. I played basketball and, you know, soccer and did the typical sports thing. I had no idea about gymnastics or, or anything related to, like, performing arts, okay? And so here I am in my tights driving to the circus school in Seattle. <laughs> we get there, and I was nervous. Like, it's high, and there's a bar, and you swing, and there's you know, people that yell, and it's crazy. And so, uh, I did, you know, very first time I grabbed, and I hop off and uh, began going down over the circus stage, this giant net, and literally, I kid you not, in that instant, oh, I was hooked. I was so hooked. It's crazy. If you haven't tried it, you got to try this thing. And so, uh, what was a once a month thing became a once every other week, and now we've like reallocated some of our budget to it, and now we're going at least once a week. Macy and I are at the circus. It's crazy. I'm in the circus. And we really are part of this community here in Seattle. And it's been totally, totally, totally crazy for us. Uh, but it's been a joy. And what I want to share with you are kind of two things that I've learned through, through our time doing that. And if you, if you don't know the guy, Henry Nowen, he has an illustration about flying trapeze. Who knew that a theologian had an illustration about flying trapeze? I had no idea. Uh, and so his whole thing is that, you know, the flyer, 
they have, so if you, if you don't know, there's a flyer, and then over here, there's a catcher who's upside down. And so the flyer goes, and then they do their trick and fly through the air, and then the catcher has to catch them. And so if you're the flyer, you have to kind of just put your trust totally in the catcher. And the catcher does all the work to get you and make everybody safe. And so he, Henry Nouwen has this analogy that, like, that's like our life with Christ. We have to put our trust in God completely. And while that's totally true, and I think it's totally beautiful, that all blew up for me when I started learning to catch. Take a moment and just watch this video with me. That's my greatest showman moment. Thank you very much. That's me, the guy upside down. That's my wife, me catching her. Um, there's not actually romantic music playing and everything that you see in the movie, but it's all good. Uh, this, this analogy of, of, of now and blew up for me because one, I am not comfortable being God in any analogy. Uh, and two, I realized that there's a lot that goes into this to make it work beyond the work of the catcher. And really, the beauty of flying trapeze for me has been seeing the way in which everything has to come together. There's all these people with different roles, and, and, and when it works just right, something beautiful can happen. This was one of the first times that I caught Macy, and while uh, it might be hard without me going and totally nerding out on this, that's very hard to do. <laughs> and uh, it is a beautiful thing. And so... Uh, Again, I, I, you know, we're, we're in this circus school, we're getting to know folks, you know, in the circus, it, it represents the full spectrum of folks, uh, gender and sexual orientation, uh, you know, folks from all over the world literally come to the circus school in Seattle to train and to practice. Um, just different ethno-racial backgrounds. I mean, just total, total diversity. And many of these people have stories that we've gotten to learn of not feeling comfortable like they could fully express themselves until they came to the circus. And so for us, it's been really significant uh, to be embedded in this community that is so diverse and to see that what's really beautiful about this is all these people coming together from these different places that, you know, didn't, don't necessarily fit cleanly together into any one social category when we're there. Um, now, all of a sudden, making beautiful art together. And for me, that's been an absolutely joyful experience. And I don't know if you can tell through my enthusiasm about flying trapeze, but this has been a transformative uh, experience for my wife and I. Every week we get to go to the circus and be with people that are totally unlike us, that we never would have been friends with or sat with necessarily at the lunch table in high school. Um, but here we are uh, having a blast together. And so again, you know, not all these people of course are believers necessarily, but the way in which they welcomed us into their community Every week, the way in which they continue to pursue us and help us get better at our craft, uh, it, to me, displays nothing less than the character of Christ uh, in the world. And so I'm reminded through this place, this uh, unforeseen, unexpected uh, uh, context of just how beautiful it is when, when we open ourselves up to new things, to new people, how we can see and taste God in others, and not just in others, but in ourselves. And so we have literally and are bursting with joy about our time in flying trapeze. And I think that the invitation for all of us this morning is to consider what is our circus?
Uh, what is our place? Who are the people to whom you've written off or decided that's not for me or you know, those, that's just those people over there or you know, those folks are just so different, I can't imagine myself being in relationship with them. Who are the people, what are the situations in which we need to find ourselves and realize that God is in that place, that God is with us when we're in that place, and that God is within all of us if we would just open ourselves up a little bit more to the possibility that that's true. And I believe that when we do that, what happens is we burst with the joy of recognizing a God bigger than we ever thought he was and who wants to be bigger in and through each one of us if we'll just let him. So the invitation for us this morning is to consider these uh, few sentences that I've left blanks for you and, and, and we're gonna enter into a moment of worship in just a minute. And that is, uh, God, would you open my eyes wider to see you in and you name the place? Can we believe together that God is present with us in the places that we find ourselves? And if we do that, I think we'll be transformed. And then ask God, show me, what are you doing in this place? And then say this prayer with, uh, in your hearts that Christ, may I burst with the joy of following you wherever you lead me and, what, and, and participate in what you're doing in this place. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we're moved by the reality that you are with us. God, we're grateful that you're not just in the places that we call home or in the places that we find ourselves traveling to or, or working in that maybe we never thought we would be. Lord, you're with us even now and, and in the mundane and the day-to-day. -day. And we want to see that. Lord, we don't just want to see it and be grateful for it. We want to be moved to a place of active gratitude, namely generosity, or that we can turn back and be a source of your light in the world, of you bursting with joy from within us in such a way that not just ourselves, but those around us would be transformed, Lord, that we might be evidence of this profound truth that you are in us that those that don't know it would be awakened to the reality of your presence and awakened to the reality of your presence within them. We love you, Lord. Meet us now in our moments of worship, we pray in your name. Amen. Let's worship.